high truths on drugs and addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website, isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Hey, hey, High Truth listeners, we have many chances and second chances on getting together for podcast entertainment and education. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. April 1st, 2022, the House passes Marijuana Legalization Bill. It passed on April Fool's Day, a big joke to our society. More business to the cannabis industry means more business for me as an emergency physician. I will be testifying for California Senate Bill 1097, the Cannabis Right to Know Act. I get 90 seconds to convince business professions and economic development that we need some consumer protections on cannabis products. While the cannabis business has boomed, so has emergency department business and marijuana poisonings. Here is my testimony. Every shift, I hear the agonizing sounds of scrometing through the hallways of the emergency department. This screaming and vomiting is a hallmark sign of cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. It happens to people who are chronic users and their cannabinoid receptors behave erratically, causing this terrible reaction. I treated a 52-year-old woman who had a heart attack after smoking marijuana. High-potency THC is a stimulant. The American Heart Association published a white paper highlighting the risk of high blood pressure, irregular heart rhythm, heart attack, and stroke with cannabis use. My emergency department right now, as well as emergency departments throughout California, are holding mental health patients for days and weeks because of psychosis and lack of resources. Many of these patients have psychosis associated with cannabis. In a study of 7,390 participants aged 12 to 64, daily cannabis use showed a 76% increased risk of psychosis. European studies showed a five-fold increased rate of permanent psychosis or schizophrenia in areas that had increased high-potency THC. They defined high potency as more than 10%. That's considered low potency in California. Psychosis and depression can lead to suicide. And the San Diego Medical Examiner noted that THC is the number one drug found in completed suicides in age under 25, the age of the developing brain. I work in a trauma center where 911 calls and ambulances bring us cannabis drug driving casualties and accidents on a regular basis. 
every shift, I treat cases of marijuana poisoning. In San Diego, we treat 37 patients a day with cannabis-related diagnoses. In California, such cases increased 53% in a three-year period. California has led the nation in marijuana legalization and should be leading the nation in our country with consumer protection. We want to create a science-informed public. The public is aware of the harms of alcohol, tobacco, and opioids. They are not aware of the harms in cannabis. That's why we need SB 1097. Did I convince you to vote yes on 1097? I wish you had a vote. Um, marijuana is the entry to drugs. But the exit from drugs is also very important, and the road to recovery can be bumpy. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, Dr. Lev. My name is Jennifer Cooper. Thank you for bringing us the High Truths podcast. I'm a big fan of you and your podcast, uh, really enjoying the topics and the interviews that you bring forward. So please continue to keep them going. My question to you today is around the opioid overdose epidemic that we're in right now and the surge in the fentanyl-related overdoses that we're seeing. So when we think about an overdose, we know that there are ways to bring somebody back from an overdose. My question specifically is that, is there a maximum number of chances of coming back to life from an overdose? Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. I know you're interested in overdoses in a humanitarian manner and professional manner. You promote Cloxado, an opioid reversal drug similar to Narcan, but in a higher dose. You pose an interesting question. In the medical side of the question, I can answer very simply. No, there is no maximum in second chances. You cannot give too much naloxone, the generic version of Narcan or Cloxado. If you give it to someone who doesn't need it by accident, nothing happens. So when in doubt, don't waste time thinking too much. Is this an overdose or is it not? Just give it. You can sort out the medical diagnosis later. You can also not give it too many times. But perhaps your question is an ethical one. We have limited resources. So how many second chances on drug addiction and treatment should people get? Let's get that answer from someone who received many second chances. Danny Darko Marciano. Danny is a recovered heroin addict, an ex-convict turned children's book author and entertainer. He has been nominated for the Best New Rapper in San Diego Music Awards 2019 and now is a member of the Grammys, Los Angeles Recording Academy. Most recently, he can be seen on season three of Mayan's MC. You can find Danny Darko's Marciano's bio and his tattoos on the High Truth show notes. Danny Darko Marciano, welcome to High Truths. How's it going? Danny, you're in a car. Yes, I am I've, in a car. I've never done a podcast in a car before. Where are you Me guys either. going? <laughs> we, are, we are headed to the Grammys in Las Vegas. Wow, that's amazing. Um, Danny, you uh, helped me out with episode number 64. Kevin Lee, uh, we talked about recovery, and you sent a question about recovery. Uh, and I dropped everything I was doing and called you. It's like, who is this inspirational guy? And uh, uh, realized we have to do a podcast. So thank you so much for making the time in the car on the way to Las Vegas. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you are a man living in recovery. Can you tell us about your journey? So my, my journey started with, um, so my, my family had a history of sexual abuse, um, physical abuse. My father was an alcoholic and an addict. Uh, he got 
he got clean. I don't know exactly when, but it was um, sometime around like my teen years. Uh, he, he was also a pedophile. So uh, there was sexual abuse in my family, which caused a lot of uh, disruption, I guess you could call it. Um, my sisters were displaced several times. They were put into a Polinsky Institute. And as a like five-year-old child, you don't really understand what's going on, but uh, you know that it's not normal behavior. Um, and I think I may have been five or six when my older sister had told me what was going on and I didn't, I didn't really understand it. Um, I didn't, wasn't a way for me to process that as a child. Um, I just remember being very upset by it. Uh, and at that point, I actually, we were living with my nana and grandpa in, uh, in Canto and my dad was in Texas. Um, my mom had kicked him out. And uh, I had actually run away. I didn't actually go anywhere. I hid behind the recliner in our living room, but because uh, I had nowhere to go. You were five years old and you ran away. Yes. Yeah. First time I tried to run away. That's uh, not 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 normal, right? No, no. Looking back on these things, you know, I've done therapy and stuff, and it's like. They, they seemed like regular events to me because they were the events that happened in my life. Um, but they're not regular events. Uh, but you don't have any way to process that as a five or six-year-old child. Um, so they, they brought me back home. Um, we moved a lot. We constantly moved. My mom didn't work. We were on welfare. My dad didn't work. Uh, and I could never figure out why until later in life. Um, he, he was fired from every job, but my theory was that he was uncomfortable around people because he was, a, he was very quiet, he was a very awkward person, uh, very angry person. Uh, so he didn't really work. And we probably moved like 15 or 16 times as kids. And I got thrown out of every school just for being disruptive. Um, I would act out, push kids off swings. Um, I lit my elementary school on fire once on accident because um, I was I was trying to smoke weed, but it was weeds. We got some weeds and put them in a bowl of paper towels. Janitor walked in. I threw it in the trash can. Whole bathroom caught on fire. Um, that was probably that, that was in sixth grade. Sixth so grade. How, by the time how I got old to, you? So the first time you ever tried um, weed was that the first drug you ever tried? Yes, but. I, and how old were you? I don't know if that was real weed. Oh. <laughs> it may be weed. Uh, sixth grade. How old would I? <laughs> it may have just been weeds. Um, how old are you in sixth grade? Ten? Yeah. Nine or like ten, that. maybe? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, about nine or ten. Um, we, we finally settled in Lemon Grove. Um, my dad wasn't living with us. My mom had kicked him out again because it had happened again. And it had turned into a scene. I... I'm Hispanic. My family is very like, they don't talk about anything, like anything that goes on in the family, it stays in the family. Um, or you would be beat or my dad would like wash your mouth out with hot sauce, like actual hot sauce. He would like pour tapatio down your throat or Tabasco sauce. Um, if you cursed or told anyone anything about the family. So we didn't have a lot of friends. We just kind of stayed with each other. 
I have, I have three siblings, an older brother, an older sister, and a younger sister. Um, and when we moved, uh, from what I understand, my Nina had, had, had turned my dad in because um, he had uh, molested one of my cousins. And my, my mom didn't want to come forward. So he was only charged with, with one count. Um, but he went, he went to prison that year. Uh, it was the year I was going to middle school. And I had run away again because I came home and there were cops at my house. And I, I didn't know what was going on, but I had an idea of what was going on. And I ran away. Um, I was a skateboarder. So I, I just I went and I slept in a park. I called my cousin. I was like, hey, uh, police are at my house. Uh, do you want to go skate? And my cousin came and met me and we skated all night. Uh, we stole some beers. We got drunk um, for one of the first times. I think I was, what was I, 12, 12 years old. We stole some beers. We got drunk and um, I didn't go home. My mom sent the cops looking for me like three days later. Uh, she sent my brother. I was sleeping at some older skateboarder's house on his couch. Um, yeah, so I uh, kind of just uh, became family with my skateboarder friends. And we were like, we were, we were not good kids. <laughs> we, um, I was really into stealing because we were very poor. Um, I'll backtrack a little bit. Uh, I think the first time I got caught stealing was um, maybe in like fifth, fourth or fifth grade. Um, stealing candy from 7-Eleven because we couldn't afford extra things like candy and stuff like that. And by the time I got into middle school, we couldn't afford clothes, school clothes. So I would go clothes shopping and steal all of the clothes, like shoes, pants, because other kids had school clothes and I wasn't going to go to school with no school clothes. So we were really into stealing, stealing beer, stealing cigarettes. We would steal entire uh, cigarette displays off the 7-Eleven Why would you want to steal a tire? I get the clothes and the, the shoes. Just because like we would steal anything, anything that you could steal. <laughs> if it wasn't somehow nailed down or chained, we would steal it. It was fun. It's, it's the thrill of crime. I think it's part of being an addict. Like you learn that, uh, that rush from different things and stealing to me was one of those rushes. Like my, friend and needed a part for his car well that car has a part so we could borrow that car part for our car and that's just kind of how we were or i was we would steal everything um i got arrested for shoplifting uh in eighth grade and i ended up having to do community service which seemed really weird at my age to be doing community service while everyone is like hanging out and playing um washing cop cars at the police station and uh usually showed up drunk um to that i would show up drunk for everything i wasn't really doing drugs then you know smoking weed occasionally but mostly just drinking every day you know by the time i was 14 i like i said i drank almost every day hardly showed up at school they actually kicked me out of ninth grade because i had like 80 something absences and they sent me to the police station to do like the school intervention thing, you know, where they bring your parents down, but my parents didn't want to show up because my dad was in prison. Um, and my mom was very depressed and didn't really leave the house. So I really showed up for that. 
I just pretty much dropped out of high school. I just, well, I'm not going to go. Uh, no one cares. And I'm drunk every day. Anyways, I'll just go skateboarding or steal something. Um, and by, by that point, I had figured out that you could steal and resell things. Um, a lot of my friends or family, um, they were gang related or gang affiliated. I was a graffiti artist, so I had a lot of graffiti friends. Um, and I learned that you could have a fence and sell things. So I was selling things, making like two, $300 a day, just stealing cigarettes or jeans or whatever people needed. Um, I had a friend that would like, give me a list of things that they needed and I'd go and get those things and make money. Um, so I was making a lot of money as a, you know, kid, not working, just stealing and professional thief. You were a professional. Yeah, I was, I was a professional thief. Yeah, yeah <laughs> And that that's, that's how I ended up uh, being a professional thief later in life. I mean, I didn't get my first job till I was almost 30. That's because the, uh, the courts made me get a job. <laughs> uh, so that's uh, the kind of longer version. Um, I drank and used for many years and stole for many years. Uh, I'll fast forward a little bit. Um, I got my first felony at 21. I got a felony DUI hit and run. Um, it's a very bad accident. Uh, I hit a car, bounced off a pole hit another car, ditched the car, ran down Washington Street in San Diego towards Pack Highway. I was trying to get to the freeway, I think. I don't know. I was very drunk and very high. Um, the police tackled me, um, spent the night in the fishbowl downtown, what they used to call it, the old fish tank. Um, Is that um, Island Detox? Yeah. You may have been my patient. I was. I have been there many times. <laughs> Oh my Let God. me tell you. Yeah. Oh no. Uh, I went through 10 day. I did the whole thing. Um, so that's, you know, so by the time I, um, I'll just go through like the highlights. So I, by the time I got clean, I'd been arrested 27 times. All, all for like stealing and DUI. And all for theft, uh, DUI. A lot of it was petty theft. A lot of repeat petty theft. I had a lot of possessions, um, syringes, stuff like that. Um, they had sent me to, uh, I'd been sentenced to 13 different rehabs. They had prop 36 and all that stuff back then. So you kind of learn the system. Like if you get caught and you also have like a possession charge, you can possibly get deferred to rehab. So I took every rehab that I could, you know, crash HOM, um, Salvation Army, uh, how many, many, times many have, how many times have you been in rehab? Uh, I think I, I think I went to 13 rehabs before they stopped sending me to rehabs. The last time that I got busted, I had been to a, a two-year prison work program. Um, I came back. Uh, I stayed clean maybe six months, went back out because that was at the point where my uh, girlfriend had committed suicide before I went to rehab. Um, Wait, tell us that story. So uh, one of my last like running partners, as we call him, my crime partner, was um, my girlfriend, who uh, was also a prostitute and dancer. Because um, you kind of figure out out there, if you have people like that that are your partners, it's an easy way to make money. If you're on probation or parole, you could do a little bit less work. Um, 
they also make money. Um, and she, she had been sick for a long time. She had necktizing fasciitis, I think it's called. Um, Necrotizing fasciitis. I know that's hard to say. Towards the end, it was, uh, it was really bad. And she was permanently hospitalized and they, she was given the choice of either she loses her leg or it's, she's going to die. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of the end for me also. It was, it was a very depressing situation. Um, she had gotten pregnant before that, lost the baby, and just a lot of stuff was happening. Um, I was tired of stealing and like you know, fencing goods and stuff. And been some many, many years. I've been out there like over 10 years on the streets. Um, and she decided that she wanted to overdose and she had gotten some money and asked me if I could go cop for her, if I could go, you know, buy drugs for her and come back and help her overdose. And I had decided that that was something that I couldn't do. Um, so I took the money and I left and I went and I, I got high with that money and I decided it would be better if I was incarcerated at that point. So I, I got busted. I went, I was super loaded. I got busted. Um, she passed away while I was downtown in the holding tank. I heard from someone else who was on the street with that had gotten busted. He showed up in the holding tank and he told me that she had passed away, that someone else had went and copped for her. Um, and so she overdosed in the hospital. Uh, wait, she overdosed in the hospital? At that point... Yes. Someone someone, someone brought her, her drugs knowing that she's suicidal for her to die. Yes. I hope that person got in trouble. So I, some years later, uh, that person committed suicide. I can't say that it was from because he did that, but I can imagine that there would be a lot of guilt from that. Uh, I was, when I heard about that, I was at the prison work program. So after I got busted, after that happened, um, I got sentenced to three years. Uh, I wound up in um, like a government work program, just learning trades, you know, learning how to work for people that were career criminals like myself that had never worked. Um, I came back to San Diego. Uh, I stayed out for six months. I was like, I was in a really bad space because I kind of felt like I didn't really have closure from when she had committed suicide and all that stuff happened. Um, I came back and I was very angry and I found a new crime partner because my old one, I had found out he was doing seven years, found a new crime partner. And they say like, you pick up where you left off. So I left off stealing and I came back and I, we were robbing people, but now we were robbing drug dealers. We thought that would cut out the middleman, forget the fence. We're just going to go straight for the goods. Um, that didn't go well because a lot of the dealers found out that we were doing that and uh, they were after us. Um, we had a nice little shootout down by 30th and university um, where the CVS is. Uh, and at that point I had one of those epiphanies being shot at that this life wasn't going super hot for me. Um, we got away and I hid in a newspaper recycler box in spring Valley for three days uh, with the dope that we had got from the last bust, I didn't have anywhere to go and there were people after me. Um, so I hid for three days. And then when I came out, I thought, you know what, probably be a good idea if I get busted again, because maybe then they can't get me. And then I realized that's a stupid idea because they can get people in jail too. Um, but I got busted again. And, um, 
they gave me uh, a county year. Uh, when I got to to court, I asked for drug court because someone in there had said, hey, there's a program you haven't tried despite the 13 programs you've been to. Uh, I asked for drug court. And the judge kind of uh, didn't want to send me to drug court because she was like, you know, Mr. Marciano, I've seen you so many times, like in innumerable amount of times. It was uh, Penny Carlos. They let me go to drug court. 18 months, stringent program. Uh, I stayed clean because in that time I had decided that, you know, uh, getting shot at and my girlfriend dying and all of the other things that had happened um, were enough things. I didn't need any more things in my life. I didn't, uh, still hadn't recovered from my childhood. I hadn't recovered from anything else. Um, so I gave drug court a chance. It tell, tell you've been in how many years or I don't know if it's years that were you in jail? Uh, collectively five. I did like two county county years, and I did three years in the uh, work program. And what was that like for you? It sounded like a couple times in your life you wanted to go to jail or prison as a kind of respite of your life on the outside. Yes, I think I think that happens to people that are institutionalized. Uh, it becomes like a safe place. You're like, oh, I can just go to jail and I'll have somewhere to be. Um, I'll have somewhere to hang out. I, everyone I know was there. I've never, I had never gone to jail and not seen people I knew because that becomes your society. Those are your people. Is it, was it, is it ever scary? Like um, scared for your life or gangs nah, in the jail or whatever? No. So my, my family has a rich history of, of criminals and some of them are affiliated with the prison people. Um, so not really, you know, and I was a graffiti artist for, since I was like 13 years old. So I knew a lot of people, a lot of people knew me. So it wasn't like, you know, we just make soups and uh, do push-ups and what, whatever you do in there, <laughs> we scrapple. How, how easy is it to get drugs in jail? They say it's, it's easy to get them in the jail. Did you use drugs it in is. jail? I, I did a few times, uh, but I'm going to be honest. I'm one of those people that I like my drugs with freedom. Um, that's just me. I want to be able to like do activities with my drugs. I don't want to sit in a cell high. Like if I can't go, cause for me, it was a lifestyle, like drugs and crime were a lifestyle. And that was the lifestyle that I knew. And that was fun. Um, so if I couldn't do those things actively, then there's no reason for me to sit in jail high. It's really boring. Honestly, I'm in a cell. What am I going to go to the mall after this or something? All right. So you, you reached your low of lows, um, with, with suicide and gunshots, um, and and now realized you want to get help, um, and went through drug court. And then you say that you ha it's not easy from being a career criminal to no, it's living in society. Difficult. Like how how did you do that? Uh, the first five years, I did it terribly. To be honest, it was it was very difficult because. Now you're this clean person with a lifetime of trauma from abuse and then the things that happen to you when you're on the street. Um, and you don't, they don't give you a way to process that. I, it's like I went to my little community connections office and they said, okay, here's the disabled bus pass. 
you have $20. You need to get a job. You need to show up to these five groups a week, drug test seven days a week. Uh, and you also have to pay for this. So I couldn't figure out how I was supposed to do that. No one would hire me because I had visible tattoos. I have a slew of felonies. Um, they don't tell you where to get a job. Here's home. I heard Home Depot hires felons. It's like, do I look like I work at Home Depot? I don't know anything about hammers. Um, I had no idea what to do. So honestly, so for the first two years, I was still stealing to pay for my disabled bus pass and to pay for my program fees because um, I couldn't find a job. My brother-in-law worked for the coroner's office, so he got me a job under the table picking up dead bodies. Uh, and when my drug court officer found out about that, because it's illegal, he he didn't uh, he didn't violate me, but he's he was like, you have to get a real job. You're working under the wait, table. Wait, wait, wait. The medical examiner pays people under the table to get dead bodies. Isn't that a government? Yes. I don't understand. How did that? What do you? That is a government job, but it was before. So the company I worked for was a contract company and they could hire whoever they want and they didn't do background checks. This was before that whole incident at the uh, Emmy's office happened. So they weren't doing background checks yet. I got fired when they did that. Um, so it was all under the table at that point. And they didn't, they didn't like that. So I, I did that for the first year and a half of the program. So I was doing that. And then I was like, stealing a little bit and selling pills on the side, um, just trying to make money and have a place to live. I was living with my sister at the time, but my sister lived in Spring Valley, like where I grew up and it wasn't a great area. And I was like living in her shed and it wasn't the best of circumstances. Um, I didn't feel really self-contained because I didn't really have anything. I didn't have a car and, or anything. Um, so it's a very difficult process. And uh, that I was, I was in AA, I was going to meetings and I was doing the steps and all that stuff. And I knew a lot of the stuff was wrong, but I didn't know how else to live because I had lived like that for literally like 20 years at that point. It's like, I don't know how to go to a job. I don't know how to get a job. My resume experience said scholarly, uh, line cook in jail and stuff like that. I didn't have a resume, so to speak. So when I would take it to places like I took it to a CVS and the guy actually laughed at me. Um, cause I would have like, had you, I would have had you, of the deceased. Um, I, I would have helped you frame <laughs> removal that. Like, of the you deceased know. and he's reading it and he's like, I have it. I have it. And I'm putting it in my book. And he's reading it to me and I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm like, just stop reading it. Just hand it back. Like, right. <laughs> and that's when I actually got a print out of my record. Cause I was like, why is no one hiring me other than the daggers that are on my neck? Cause I used to have two knives on my neck when I got out. And so he asked if I wanted a copy of my record. And I'm like, actually, I do. I'd like to see this crap because no one is hiring me. So I have that copy of the record that I got from that job interview. He mailed it to me. Um, and so for some reason, I saved all that stuff. And now looking back, it'll be handy because um, it's hard. It's difficult. Nobody wants to give you a chance. So I, I finally got a job. I got a job. The months before I was supposed to graduate because I was going to get kicked out. My girlfriend had kicked me out, so I was homeless. So I was like, having a stretch of bad luck. And um, actually, I got a job at a grocery store. Um, I got a job at a grocery store, ironically, that I had been banned from like for life because I had felonies from there. And I could never figure out like if they knew that or not, if they looked that up because I didn't want to ask them. But they hired me um, and I got a job in customer service. 
unfortunately, it wasn't like what I thought it would be because they didn't hire people with tattoos. So I had to wear a turtleneck and gloves and go to work with a hat on. And like, they told me to lay low and don't do anything wrong. Um, Cause the lady honestly felt bad for me. I showed her my resume and uh, she said, you know what, I'm going to give you a job because I have a niece that's a heroin addict and she can't get clean. Um, and I told her my situation and she's like, if this helps you, then I'm going to give you a job. And she gave me a job. Wow. Yeah. That's how one person can inspire and change someone's life. Yeah. And I don't think if she knows uh, any of this, but it's yeah. like, look what happened from so that. So one of the, the person asking you a question for the show, last time you asked a question. Um, so uh, Jennifer Cooper asked a question of you and hers, her is, she has an interesting job. She uh, helps uh, sell um Cloxado, which is kind of like Narcan. So, you know, she helps uh, save people from overdoses in, in that way. And her question was, how many second chances are, are, are too much? Like, you know, in, in your experience, you had, I don't know what you told me about at least 30 something second chances that you were given um, in, in life. And so is there a limit to second chances? That's her question to you. I, I don't think there is. I, I mean, if anyone had given up on me at any time, I mean, I can't, I couldn't tell you how many second chances I've had. It's an unbelievable amount. And you don't know when someone's going to get it. It's like that saying in recovery. Um, it's like, it's on God's time. And I, I, I don't know when God's time is, or if you don't believe in God, or it's just, it's just fate. Like that, that time that you give that person the second chance, that could be the time that they make it. And if yeah. that opportunity isn't there, then what's going to happen to that person? Right. So I, I think that, I mean, you're an example of that. Someone who got many, many second chances. Mm, that, so many. <laughs> I think the, the limit of second chances is, is infinite. Um, but you also say something very important that recovery is for people who want it, not for just anybody who needs it. Right. So tell, and, tell, tell us about that. By the time I got to recovery, I really wanted it because um, sitting in that cell for the last time and just reflecting on the things that had happened with my girlfriend and the cops and all the stuff, uh, I just I just felt like there was there was more. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what the more was. Like they say, more will be revealed or whatever. Um, it it will be revealed. It's just that you have to open the door for the opportunity or you have no idea what's going to happen. And I didn't know it, it's scary for a lot of people getting sober. If you've been a career criminal or a career addict or anything like that, it's like, you have no idea what's going to happen, but you know, what's going to happen if you stay on the same path. I was either going to die in prison or I was going to get shot. It was those are the, I was going to die. That was what was going to happen. Um, and I just, I wanted to see what else was out there. And to backtrack a little bit, when I was in the work program, I had written a kid's show um, because I didn't have a very good childhood. And people ask me all the time, why do you do kid stuff? Like you're covered in tattoos and you're an ex-con. It's like, well, I, I, you know, when I asked my mom, my mom would tell you, you guys had a great life. You were so happy. And I'm like, I think we had different lives. Like, I'm not sure which one you were in, but the one I was in, it didn't have a lot of bright times. You know what I mean? 
And when Mike and I go and play and we can give those moments to those kids or the families or the adults, it doesn't matter. It's like you give them that experience in that moment of, of happiness. It's like, that's why we throw French fries or hot dogs or burritos or donuts or what, whatever it is that we're doing. So it's, let's process a little bit. Back. Let's process a little what you're telling us. You are a career criminal. You were a career criminal covered with tattoos with a father who is a pedophile who is now a child entertainer driving to the Grammys. <laughs> that's, that's exactly the story I'm telling you. And, 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 and that is very strange. So again, I, I understand what you're saying. You're saying I wanted to be, you know, entertain kids cause I had a poor childhood, but don't your, um, tattoos scare kids and, and, uh, um, it, it was it was an awkward entry into the uh, kids world. Um, I was just telling a fellow kids entertainer at a Grammy party on Monday because um, they were asking about that. And I'm like, well, I'm going to be honest, the first kids festival I showed up at, they called security. I was by myself. So I'll backtrack to the kids book thing. I wrote some kids books and songs when I was in the work program. Years later, I got my first book published. Um, and I didn't have the band then. It was just myself. I was doing a book tour. I had a rocket ship that I had built. And you can find all these pictures on my Instagram. Tell, what was the book? Stuff. What was your um, first book? It, the, my first book was Thomas Blassoff. It's about a boy who uh, overcomes adversity like myself and achieves his dreams. And his dream was to build a rocket ship and go to outer space. And since I was poor and my first guitar was a Kleenex box with a two by four and some strings that my grandpa had made me. I thought this kid's going to go to outer space, but with a trash can that he builds from one of those old ghetto trash cans uh, and blasts off to outer space. And I built the rocket and took it on tours. So I showed up to a festival with my trash can rocket ship and my tattoos. And I said, oh, hey, I'm Danny Darko. I'm one of the authors. And he called security on me. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, wait a minute. I know the org. I know, I know Steve. Um, I know Steve, Steve from Hullabaloo Man, who I'm, friends with now it was steve's fair and i'm like i'm can you call steve like uh <laughs> i'm here with my rocket ship right guys let me in <laughs> yeah so you have you have to kind of get get over that tell us about your tattoos when, yes um your head to toe or you have a lot of tattoos uh, i i am i am head to toe at this point from the tippy top to my actual my toes are are tattooed what, how old are you when you first got your first tattoo? Do you know what it was? Uh, yes, um, I was 20. And it was, uh, uh, it was to cover up scars. So I started getting tattoos because when you're a drug addict and alcoholic, you do a lot of dumb stuff. And I had a lot of scars on my arm. Um, and I wanted to cover them up. Playing like games when you're high, really stupid things. Uh, you probably haven't put a lit cigarette between your arm and another person's arm and played chicken because it's stupid. But we used to do that when we were high a lot because it doesn't hurt when you're on um, uh, heroin and stuff like that. So <laughs> game lasts a little longer, but you end up with a lot of scars. So I started covering up scars with more scars um, as dysfunctional people do. Uh, and I ended up with a lot of tattoos. And it's like my neck and stuff is like, that's all a cover up from uh, like a, stupid jail tattoo that i thought would be awesome of knives because knives are cool and i thought that would be fun for the rest of my life 
Oh, so you added more tattoos to cover the ones that you don't like. Yes, because when I got out, it was like they only did laser for um, certain things. And I was like, you know, I wasn't thinking about jobs, obviously, because I never had one. I thought I'll just cover it up with more tattoos, um, which is not job friendly. <laughs> you will find out. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> All right. So now now they're part of who, who you are. Do you have a favorite that one? Or do you have any ones that is. you wish you didn't have? Most of them. Um, I wish I didn't have. But I I have a lot of skeletons. Um, I'm a skeleton person. So a lot of me is covered in actual skeleton. Uh, so I my palm is now a skeleton, which you don't see very often your someone's whole palm being a skeleton which i really like uh because it's extremely painful so wait so do you regret the tattoos or you or this is who you are now it is who i am but if you know 20 years ago i thought i was gonna have to get clean and get a job i may have made different choices but you know who's to say yeah interesting these are things you don't think about any tattoos, speaking of like security calling on you, like if I met you on the street and I didn't know who you are, I think, I think I'd be scared. Is that not, is that fair? Not fair? Is that stigmatizing on my, is that, is that. That's pretty common. Is that a good no, that instinct or, a or like you shouldn't be so judgmental of people? I don't know. To be honest, I don't notice it as much, but people that I'm with a lot of times will notice it because I'm completely blind to it and oblivious um, and I don't really care. But there are times that I've noticed it that I think it's very funny. Like I travel now. I travel every year. I go to Europe, except for during COVID. Um, And when I travel, people like stay away from me. Like I was in Italy and I got on the train and the family got up and moved to the next train. Because in other countries, it's different things. I mean, yes, they're right. I am a criminal, but I'm not a criminal anymore. But that's that's the stigma that it has. It's like, do you have that to other people? What if you were walking and you saw someone like that? I mean, you've lived that and you know, I might think I knew him. I might be. (laughs) But would you care? Would you hold on to your wallet better or? I, I understand why people do that. That's why I don't care. I'm like, I know why they're doing it because I did rob people and I did take people's wallets. So they're a hundred percent right. Like that actually happened. So you're not stereotyping me. I did that. Danny, we, we, you call yourself an addict and your girlfriend was an addict and we're trying to teach the medical community to, to say a person with substance use disorder, instead of you stigmatizing language such as junkie or addict. Um, you, you've lived that you've had that. What is your, um, viewer, do you get offended for, for um, using that kind of language? Or does it make a difference? To me, it, it doesn't make a difference to me. Like, I don't, I don't feel degraded by people calling me an addict or uh, a criminal or a felon because those, those are things that I was. Um, but I've come to a place in my life where I'm so beyond those things uh, that I'm different things now. I'm, I'm a I'm a Grammy member. I'm a children's entertainer. I do a lot of different things and I get to be around people and in a place that I never imagined. It doesn't bother you. And it's, it's not important to use, use the right type of language to, to prevent stigma. Yeah. I don't think it's, I mean, I know we try to label everything appropriately and politically correct these days, but I don't know if um, that's applicable in the recovery community. I know some people want to remain anonymous and stuff like that, but if you do, then that's your choice. It's like, I don't know if I uh, 
as the person I am that I have the luxury of being as anonymous. Yeah. But that's okay. And you are you're going to the Grammys, music culture, and um, not being in the music industry, but there um, it has a reputation of having a drug culture. And yet you're a man in recovery. How does that fit? Is that a um, challenge to you? So what happened with that was, is so I, um, because I already lived the lifestyle, I feel like I was, I was hesitant to get into music because I knew the lifestyle. And I think part of getting into the children's entertainment industry may have helped with that because it's a different culture. It's not the same culture as mainstream music. All the kindy people, um, or like a different kind of vibe. It's very clean. It's very wholesome. Um, a lot of it is teachers or people that were music teachers um, of that kind of folks. It's a little more tame, I should say. What's the after party like at the, for the for the kids program versus the drug after party um, for the the other bands? I think it's it's a it's a similar program, but it's you know everyone does their own thing. It's like, you know, if that's your party, then that's your party. But, you know, you still have a, a an image to uphold. Yeah, but you you're having just as much fun without the drugs and alcohol. Oh, yeah. I haven't gone to jail once. So that's a big change in my life because um, that was like once a week. So it's it's all good. It's you know, it's I think for someone like myself, um, because I don't think any portion of my life was regular at any point before I got clean. It's a whole different experience, you know? Wow. It's you, like you, I get to live what to me is a normal life, which is dressing up as food and entertaining people. And you're, yeah, it's a second life for you, really. You've had it's one life and a whole life. another life, like another planet. Um, do you still have cravings for drugs? Do you, was it recovery hard during COVID? I actually started seeing a therapist and um, I did cognitive therapy. I did reparenting, dialectical therapy, uh, read probably 150 behavior mod books. Um, I did all of the relationship books, every single one that you could think of. I have read um, because of the relationships that I had that were either with prostitutes or people in the um, adult industry. I had a very interesting life and none of my relationships were healthy because of my non-parenting. Um, so that helped me deal with what I think would be normally triggering for people that get into recovery that have had dysfunctional lives and haven't addressed any of their core issues. Um, I'd still see a therapist. Um, uh, twice a month. Um, I, I still do, um, you know, I still read books. I do all of that stuff. Uh, so to answer your question about during COVID, I have a very strong support group. I have a sponsor. I have a therapist. I have a, a pastor. I have a very strong team of people that I stay connected with every single day. Wow. I don't, I don't, I don't step outside of that. Even if I'm out of the country or I'm at the Grammys, it's like, I stay connected to those people so that I'm accountable to someone um, because that's it's, it's a level of accountability that I never had before. That's, that's beautiful. That's, um, that's also 
privileged, right? I mean, how many people, that, that's so, that's so wonderful that you have that, it's, but I imagine that's hard to get. You must have worked hard to get that. Yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> so, so that's, that's the thing. It's like, if you want to get a lot out of recovery, it's, I tell people all the time, it's directly proportionate to the amount of work that you put into the recovery. It's like, I didn't, I didn't just wake up and I'm going to the Grammys with Mike. It's like, that's not how it happened. It's like, I wrote these things. I invested the time and the energy into getting into the industry and putting myself out there and putting myself into a position where I could be successful. I considered myself successful as a criminal because that's all I knew how to do. I put a lot of time and energy into that. It's like, you don't just have that network of people. You acquire that network of people. You just acquire them a different way. Wow. I guess you were always a people person one way or another. And now you found a, a good group to be around. Just that's a amazing. different, different yeah. cater of people on this side of the tracks. So you, you do really cool um, music now. I got to watch um, some of your videos. Maybe at the end of this, we'll pay, play a little bit of your French fry song. Cause I really like that where you're all that's on a, a dance floor. Song. Yeah. Throwing French fries around. It's like, wow, I want to be on that, on that set. Um, <laughs> tell us about, do you have a favorite song? Um, I like a lot of our songs. French fries is one of our most popular songs. My current, like our, my favorite song to play is probably milk and cookies. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. All right. We awesome. love playing that song. It's a fun song to play. <laughs> All right. Maybe show us Mike. Does Mike, uh, Mike plays Mike, uh, say milk hello. and cookies? Hey, how you doing? <laughs> All right. Safe drive to, um, to Las Vegas for the Grammys on a podcast. That is pretty cool. Um, and uh, tell us as we as we end here, Danny, what what is your advice to Jen, um, who you know promotes uh, Cloxado, which is um, uh, opioid reversal agent? But really, I think you have a lot to give advice to people who are just seeking recovery. Yeah, uh, I always feel like anytime you can invest into someone's recovery is priceless because people planted a lot of seeds with me and they may, might not have come to fruition that day or the next day, but I remember those people and I re remember the things that they gave me. Um, and maybe they'll use them in the future. So wow. plant the seeds. Plant the seed. That's good. I feel like you're giving me advice too. <laughs> what, is, what is your advice to me as a doctor? I see people who are like every single day in the emergency department and um, in terrible condition. And I um, try to be compassionate. I try to, I see people on their way to jail and I say to them, maybe this is an opportunity for you to make, do something different. Yeah. Um, um, you any, may have told me at 12 day, who knows? You may have, <laughs> you may see me at 11, uh, 11 Island. <laughs> right. Ever, I was there you, enough. Have you ever ended up in the emergency department? Oh Yeah. Plenty of times when the cops smashed me through an SUV window one time, um, I got to do the Jay-Z thing with my shirt over my head and they pulled me into the thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, ha right. I had my fair share. Yeah. <laughs> so I got all these gold teeth. That's where I would have seen you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, can we um, do a shout out here? Um, <laughs> and maybe it's the end. We need to do a shout out to Patrick Foley, who has been on this show um, also at the, one of the, our first episodes and he's your sponsor. So, Hey, Patrick. Yes. Much love for Patrick Foley. 
Wow. So he knew you your your whole journey. He met me when my girlfriend kicked me out and I was about to get kicked out of drug court. My original sponsor needed to take a break because his kids were going to college. So he referred me to Patrick. Um, and so Patrick and I hit it off. Uh, he, I, he has the picture on his phone. I sent him of all my belongings in a shopping cart in uh, UTC. And I'm walking down the street. And I'm like, Pat, I'm homeless again. Can you come pick me up? <laughs> so he, he, is, he has been there. And he's an example of someone who has infinite patience. Yes. And support. He's, wow. he's a solid guy. Um, all right, Danny, you are uh, an amazing human being. I, I mean, saying uh, we talked about second chances and many second chances. The fact that you told me that you did 12 step and you did it several times. I think that's amazing. I, I, I think people who don't have a substance use disorder, if they could even do some of those steps without having yeah. an addiction, makes them nicer, beautiful human being. And I think that that's um, you're a, a stunning example of overcoming a, adversity, of, of the benefit of infinite uh, second chances. And I wish you a lot of success um, and, uh, and fun in your Grammys and many more entertaining music uh, projects and books that you write. I want to thank Jen for, thank you, Jen, for your question um, and your work in saving lives from overdoses. I very much appreciate our conversations and dedication to your work in the pharmaceutical industry and the care you have on the issue of addiction. And Danny Darko Marciano, what an honor to meet you. Thank you. And to have this conversation on the road. And I really wish you a lot of success and health uh, for your whole body and from the neck up. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit IsaacOne.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their medical library, translated for public understanding, Listen to their speaker series and follow the science. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davy Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. Mm-hmm.